Hello, Tracy. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. You can hear me? I can hear you fine. I can hear you fine. Good to talk to you. I think it's about probably, what, two, three years since we last chatted? I know. It's been a long time. How have you been? I don't know. I can't remember. I think I was in another part of Las Vegas when I last talked to you, but I guess I'm still in the same town, at least. Um, but I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the format of the show and then we'll just get into it. I mean, basically I chat with this fellow who's also in LA. He's 64 and I guess a guerrilla linguist. His name is Heron Stone. I'm not sure if you've heard previous recordings, but basically we have a long format, um, conversation, which can go for an hour, an hour and a half. And we just talk about a wide variety of stuff and that's the format of the show. Oh, wow. That's neat. So I thought you were a particularly interesting person and also just, yeah, a number of things that we could possibly talk about. Um, and also feel free to, you know, feel free to send us off in different directions. And I mean, the, the nature of the, the nature of the recording is that, uh, you can take it in whatever direction you want and I might take it in other directions and we'll just see what happens after all it, it all comes together. Okay. <laughs> So it might be just interesting to kind of introduce how we first started talking about podcasting, what, three, four years ago. So do you kind of recall how it all came together? I remember I got an email from the IGDA, a Game Developers Association, and I believe your name was listed in that, talking about podcasting, and I was like, Okay, why don't I give this a shot? See if he wants to talk with me. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy time actually. I think I've I have this history of being overcommitted, and it was just one of those periods where I was extremely overcommitted, but I wanted to kind of motivate people because I'm now doing four podcasts. I can't remember. I was probably doing three or four podcasts, or actually, I'd just come off a long form comedy podcast that I helped out with some guys, and I just wanted to do another podcast in a similar format. So I contacted, I guess, Jason De La Roca at the time at the International Game Developers Association. That's what IGDA stands for, for folks listening in. And uh, right. just proposed, you know, why don't we have a IGDA podcast? Of course, the IGDA has had a few twists and turns since then. And the problem was just that I wanted other people to kind of get involved and motivate it. But as it, as it happened, kind of things fell apart. And I seem to recall you were at a point where you couldn't, you, you got involved with the kind of initial training and talking, and then I think basically the whole project just fell apart under its own weight. It started out with about 40 people who were interested and ended up with just me, you, and probably a handful of others, and I think we all went our separate ways. So that's how, how you and I originally were talking about this format. But um, I guess, have you lived in L.A. your whole life? Well, I don't actually live in L.A. I live about... Two hours and 45 minutes, to be precise, <laughs> away from it. I remember having this conversation with you about two and a half years ago, actually. How, how silly of me. So I actually remember having this exactly this conversation about how you don't live in L.A. <laughs> yeah, I'm still in the same position, Tom. <laughs> right, right. So you grew up, you, you're to the north of L.A., aren't you? Uh. Yeah, I'm so used to saying down south, it's hard for me to envision up north. But yeah, I'm north of L.A. Right, right. So, <laughs> in, I mean, in terms of, you've, you've lived in that whole area, you've lived in that area your whole life. My whole life. Right. So, 
my wife comes well my wife came from OC originally and then moved out to Victorville uh, I lived in Victorville for her late teens so I do have a sense and also when I lived in the Bay Area I spent initially I lived well I lived in I spent a bit of time in Davis and then I lived in Cameron Park and I really have a lot of time for those kind of satellite towns uh, from Sacramento but um I mean, in terms of in terms of uh, of living where you live, do you do you feel that you really were part of Southern California, or do you feel that you were in your own little area? Um, well, I'm in the Central San Joaquin Valley. That's kind of its own little world because you're either up north or you're down south. There's unless you're a farmer, there's really not too much of an opportunity for the type of things I want, because I want to design video games. Obviously, that's how I met you. Certainly, certainly. I think everyone wants to design video games in some own particular way. What, <laughs> what kind of video games are you particularly interested in? Oh, my gosh. Um, my favorite is probably RPG. Well, not probably. It's definitely RPG. Um, right now I'm playing Halo Reach. Have you played that? No, I'm I'm kind of I'm a strange member of the International Game Developers Association. But continue with your discussion, then I'll explain a little bit more about how I got connected with the IGDA. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm playing Halo Reach right now. I'm looking forward to Gears of War three in April of 2011. Yes, I have the date written on my calendar. <laughs> and um, as far as me designing games, I definitely want to do RPGs. You know, stuff along the lines of, like, Final Fantasy, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my introduction to the International Game Developers Association was when I moved to the Bay Area. I was working... You're familiar with the Tamagotchis, little handheld toys? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was working with a startup that was working with Bandai to license, like, an internet version of that back to Bandai. So I signed up with the IGDA in 2000. And really what I wanted to make was, have you seen the uh, Kubrick film AI about the robot boy? Um, I believe I've heard of it, but I have yeah. not seen it. There's a teddy bear in that, which is a kind of animatronic teddy bear, which is kind of, uh, kind of Teddy Ruxpin plus, you know, 40, 50 years. And that was ultimately my dream at the time was to develop artificial intelligence kind of robot toys that kids would play with. But in parallel to that, I guess the IGDA is a very strange organisation because it represents a large number of students and independents as well as studios, and there's kind of a variety of different directions. But now, as I come to it, I wrote a, a n novel w when I was 17, and I'm now rewriting that in, um, well, you say RPG, in a traditional role-playing game, context with the view that it could then move into uh, very much into a computer game and also um, when I was about 19 I wrote a game called The Mushroom Boy which was basically an RPG through a large cityscape but it was a randomly creating cityscape so you would you know um, escape from the federal agents or what have you through people's backyards and through these kind of environments and that was all randomly generated so I've developed kind of game-like components, obviously Noble Ape as well and these kind of things. I've developed game-like components, but I've never actually been involved with kind of traditional production video games. Why not? 
Um, I think there's a quality of life issue. I mean, although it seems quite crazy to say it now, I need quite a bit of extra time. Like, for example, I write chapters in academic books and I develop Noble Ape and I maintain two communities and now four podcasts. And I've got all these kind of after-hours activities. And the people that I know who are professional game developers, that's like literally their life. That's all they do. Um, oh, yeah. And I think basically, uh, and I'm also married now and these kind of things. And I mean, being being a game developer and being married and the hours and these kind of things, I'm just, I'm too old for it. I mean, I, I don't feel, <laughs> I feel if I was in my, like when I was in my 20s, when I lived in the Bay Area in my early 20s, I was probably the ideal point to be doing game development. But now I'm really interested in um, kind of rich texture stuff, like basically creating rich environments and real depth. And I think that's what comes through the artificial life community as well. So I guess my interests now are creating the rich environments. And there's always been a, a, like, for example, Will Wright Spore and all the Sims games and these kind of things. There's always been a, a movement into the artificial life community. But if you wanted to create like a planet, like teeming with plants and animals that was completely interactable, that's the kind of stuff that I do basically. That's awesome. So maybe it's a good thing that I just had a wedding called off on me, right? <laughs> so I could focus on games. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I look, I've, I've been married for nearly 10 years now, and I'm I'm a big fan of, of marriage, and I think the right person is out there for you, Tracy. Don't don't lose hope. But I agree. I, I agree. It's a, it is a very time-consuming exercise, and it's a commitment. I mean, you need to take it very seriously. So... I, th I think if if these things have gone awry currently, maybe it's for the best because you need to find someone who, you know, really is going to take it seriously. Right. And then as far as being time consuming, I think any job is because right now I'm working two jobs, neither of which are what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I figure, hey, why not do what I want to do <laughs> if both routes are going to consume all of my time, you know? Mm. Well, I agree. I mean, my day job is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. And really what I do is I maintain my after-hours interests by doing a day job. So, I mean, I think this, and in, in this day and age, there are very few people actually doing in their day job what they want to be doing for the rest of their life. I think a lot of people are just surviving through any means necessary. And even, I mean, I, I count myself very thankful to even have a job in these circumstances. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm thankful. It's good to know I'm not the only one struggling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife hasn't had work since January of last year, and she does various small business things. She makes cakes and cookies and uh, cupcakes and a wide variety of other things. But it's not the same thing. I mean, well, she, she treats it as a full-time job, uh, but it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's a different kind of thing, and I think it's considerably more chaotic than uh, she'd experienced previously. But then again, I mean, when I lived in the Bay Area, I was working effectively multiple jobs. I mean, I was working with multiple startups. And that did have elements of things that I, I loved about it. So, I mean, I think, you know, ebbs and flows. But with the current economy, really, yeah, it, it's good to have anything, I think. Sure, yeah. So when we talked about two and a half years ago, we talked quite a bit about the kind of anime cosplay scene that you're also very heavily a part of. You remember? Uh, <laughs> well, your Facebook page is also a testament to your hobbies. So I, I think, uh, you know, in, I, I've always found that really fascinating. And it's funny because um, going... I'm fascinating. 
<laughs> because these these con I I mean these conventions are so um I don't innocent is the wrong term. The kind of conventions I go to are like academic conventions and this kind of stuff and they just leave me feeling dirty. And the best convention <laughs> I ever went to was a toy soldier convention in the UK and I think I should I um I'm trying to get on do you know Brandon DiCamillo at all? He did Jackass and various other things. Oh yeah. yeah. I just watched that a couple actually. <laughs> He's a fellow that uh, I've been in community... Actually, around the same time that I communicated with you, he had a crew that... They have a podcast that they do as well. Uh, and I was in communication with uh, not him specifically, but some of his cohorts. But he's a fascinating fellow. This whole notion of kind of rich environments and universes kind of created and make-believe. Um, but he now goes to all these uh, conventions, both comic book conventions and also video games conventions. Uh, because he does independent DVDs, obviously. But I'm really interested in this, um, I don't know, this whole... Uh, I guess it's always been something that I've seen but never really participated in. And certainly your participation, other people I know who participate in these things, I always just treat it with kind of childlike wonder. I mean, that seems to be the raw emotion associated with these things, right? Right. Well, Tom, you and your wife, I am looking... For people for my Gear the War cosplay next year at Comic Con, you're welcome to join us. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! I don't know what I I don't know what I'd go as. Oh, I'd make a costume and you just wear it. That's it. <laughs> okay. Are the kind of I don't know much. I the, the my only connection with Gears of War is um through the original launch music and stuff and all the mythology and I watched a lot of YouTube clips of the game being played. Yeah. So I don't really have a sense of it aside from... There are alien creatures, though, in it, aren't there? Um, they're not aliens. They're actually called locusts, and they're creatures that live underground. Mm -hmm. you got to play this game, Tom. It's a must-play. Okay. I, I'll, I'll need to investigate that. I guess if I was going to go and cosplay, my... my the, I mean, I, I dressed up as a, a child, and even into my late teens when I was at college... Um, I would. I lived on a very conservative college. This is going to sound very strange in um, in a kind of Californian context, but I used <laughs> to shave my head and I would paint myself black, um, and I would go to these this conservative thing as uh, a wide variety. I went as Louis Farrakhan one year, and I just basically was doing it to stick it to these. Um, these particular people because they said, oh, dress up. And, you know, people came in kind of cowboy outfits and things like that. And I arrived and it was, you know, pretend this is Australia, obviously it was, let's have an American night. So I went as Louis Farrakhan and the wow. year following I went as another, but I just, I I really like this notion that you can exist as an, almost like an avatar um, in, in real life. And I'm, I'm very receptive to that. So I'll need to do some research and work out what is a strange and eclectic creature uh, from Gears of War that I could uh, commission you to make a, an outfit for me. <laughs> I would be honoured, Tom. Seriously. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm six foot four, so it would need to be quite a. The main thing is, I, I guess when I used to shave my head and the Louis Farrakhan thing and all this kind of stuff was just for shock value. Um, uh -huh. So I don't know. There's a, there's a strange kind of psychological element associated with shock value. But all your costumes have always been kind of cutesy anime. The most recent one was slightly darker, though, wasn't it? Yeah, I actually prefer the darker, but 
I pull off the cutesy really well, or so I've been told. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Not to do my own horn, right? But beep, beep. <laughs> yes, yes. I have the fellow who maintains the biota site in Australia is part of, and I think we talked about this two and a half years ago, is part of the furries community, which is a completely different community. But the same, similar kind of cosplay, but there's a, there's a very uh, strange kind of adult fixation associated right. with that. Right. And, you know, I, I remember that. Yeah, I, I don't really... This is, I guess, my concern, really, that there's an element... I'm, I'm, I don't want to appear in the kind of perverse, but I am... I, I just find the whole thing rather strange. I mean, we own cats, for example, and <laughs> I just find it really strange that people would dress up as cats for these kind of conventions. But I, I think we talked about the whole... the fact that there is a clear kind of delineation between cosplay on one side and furries on the other side and there's absolutely no interbreeding between the two <laughs> yeah furries i mean if people want to do it that's great that's a little too far out there for my taste but more power to them <laughs> yes i guess yeah i guess it's a strange it's almost a civil rights thing, really. <laughs> in some kind of very strange way. And, I mean, for people, I, I think it's probably best that people just Google the furries movement rather than us go into any degree of detail. But it is a really curious thing. And I guess, yeah, I guess the whole, I mean, the whole notion of these fantasy games and cosplay and all these kind of things is very much, I, I think, about revisiting both elements of make-believe and elements of childhood that our kind of conservative society typically just doesn't allow. And I'm all in favour of that, actually. Mm -hmm. I remember recording a podcast, actually, when I, when, in the building that I used to live in that I talked to you last from, and there were kids outside playing Magic the Gathering. And I remember recording the podcast and just thinking, these kids are being really loud and really annoying, but more power to them. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, so I think I'm very, very sympathetic to all these kind of things. And I think, actually, um, I guess I'm a big fan of kind of dark future elements of these guys, and they always have these these play elements as, as part of it as well. How many conventions would you attend a year? Oh, would I attend? Man, if I had my way, I'd be going every weekend, but <laughs> there's only so many in a year. Um, I go, let's see, to Comic-Con, to Anime Expo. There's one in Washington that I'd like to go to. And there's one on the East Co uh, Coast. I believe it's called Otacon. Okay. Um, so around four a year around there. Right, right. Yeah, my interest is more in the line of kind of uh, toy soldiers and... I guess I mean, I'm not really part of any kind of role-playing community. I have long-standing connections with toy soldiers, though, because when I lived in the UK, I basically contacted every sculptor and painter and all this. Because, I mean, when I was a kid growing up in Australia, they were extraordinarily expensive. They had to all get imported from England. So when they arrived, they were just off the, off the charts expensive. Um, and I used to get together with my friends, and we'd kind of pool all our money and we'd send it off to the UK, and about six months later, this box would arrive, and then we'd kind of paint them up and, and play with them. And that kind of repressed emotion, I kind of held it back when I was in the UK for the first year I was there, and then I bought some magazines, and it all just came tumbling down. And now I have 
I don't know, maybe two cubic metres of finely painted lead off in the bedroom <laughs> that my wife kind of tells me to kind of keep away. But it's a remarkably... I mean, I've gotten back into actually the painting part just because I really yeah. enjoy the, the kind of focused element. And, of course, it's all... Although a lot of the stuff I do now is, um, you know, First and Second World War stuff, but... Uh, I, I do really get the sense that one needs these kind of hobbies. In terms of the costumes, the costumes you make are really elaborate. Um, does it take you like a month or two's worth of work to to get them produced? You know, it depends on the costume, and it also depends on what else is going on in my life. Um, the latest one that I made, the Harley Quinn one that you're talking mm-hmm. about from Batman, um, that one took me about two months Gosh. because... Yeah, I had to literally, what I do is I buy patterns and I modify them, but this one was so very different from anything I've ever done. I just had to kind of wing it and hope it came out right. So right. it took about two months. Wow. <laughs> and do you keep them afterwards or do you sell them or do you just like have a wardrobe full of these things? Believe it or not, <laughs> I have have a room dedicated to nothing but video games and that sort of thing. Wow. And in the closet, I have all of my costumes. Gosh. So yeah. in terms of all your costumes, which one is the most elaborate and is the one that you like bring out occasionally and do a little bit more work on, or are they all completed in full when you wear them? They, every single one of them are made with a lot of love. Um, the most elaborate one, gosh, probably my Midna costume from, I don't know if you've seen it from The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Okay. It's, it's the uh, the cape, the hooded one, it's like black velvet. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? I'm not sure. It, I, it sounds familiar, but the, they basically all, all move into a blur. I think I might have seen yeah. it. Was it one that you made maybe three years ago? Uh, let's see. I think I made it two years ago. It's okay. the one where I have the red hair. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll need to go back that... to your Facebook photos and, and establish that <laughs> one. We might use that as a show image. <laughs> awesome. That's most definitely the most time-consuming one I've ever done. That one took me about six months. Wow. And when you say yeah. six months, is that all sewing time, or is that like two months of planning and then buying the material and cutting the material? That's like start to finish. That's going, that's getting the idea in my brain, going to Joanne, mm. getting the material, you know, drafting the patterns. And, and that's not including the time that I have to go to work. I have to go to school. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of the skill set, is this something that you picked up from childhood or your teens? Or when did you get into this kind of seamstress costume designing phase? Um, honestly, I had always been into, like, games, and I always, what was it? What got me started on this? Scratch all that, what I just said. <laughs> what got me started on this was Game Informer magazine. I'm sure you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, well, there was an article that talked about what the Japanese uh, young people would do for fun, and they would go to these conventions dressed as their favorite characters. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I wonder if there's any of those here in the United States. And there was. So I was like, I'm going to teach myself how to sew. And that's exactly what I did. I'm self-taught. 
Very good, very good. And when did when did you start doing this? Was it like six, seven years ago, or? Oh, let's see, two thousand six for Anime Expo. Wow. So this is only a relatively recent hobby of yours. It, it's pretty recent. You know, I didn't know anything like this even existed. And in terms of where you are currently, I mean, you've talked a bit about the kind of opportunities that you you have in your area. Is there like a local group of people that do this kind of stuff, or are you really alone in terms of just doing it and getting down to LA or wherever the cons are being held and and showing your wares, or is there like a local community that's kind of self-supporting? <laughs> no, I'm kind of on my own on this one, but most of the people that I talk to are just fascinated by it, and all of them have expressed an interest in it. Um, I actually have my first commission from one of my good friends, and I'm making him a costume. What I'm trying to do right now is get a part-time costume business going since Halloween is coming. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm just trying to get my foot in the door any way I can. Mm. But I guess the thing about Halloween costumes, my wife um, used to be... uh, she used to be heavily involved with the kind of Renaissance Fair circuit, and she had a lot of clothes that she had made herself for the Renaissance Fairs. I'm not sure if she ever sold any of that stuff. Um, but it was, uh, I mean, for her, it was really a, a job in terms of juggling and selling stuff and all this kind of thing. But I get the impression that the Renaissance Fairs, particularly like the weaponsmithing and all the kind of armor and various costumes, because they seem to be like long-term things. In fact, there's one that happens annually here. It's coming up. And I went for the first time last year. My wife was actually in in Victorville at the time. I went down and checked it out myself because I've always been, I'm a bit of a purist with regards to these things. I mean, when we lived in the UK, my wife would go to ironically cloth craft shows and they would always have stuff for the men to do. They'd either have radio-controlled planes, but some of the time they'd have sword fighting and, like, you know, these guys doing reenactment stuff. But the British guys took it to, like, an extreme level. Like, they knew exactly that they were from, you know, the 1450s Germany kind of stuff. I mean, they knew basically their period down. Whereas the Renaissance fairs just seem to be a complete intermingling of all these kind of ideas. And I guess what strikes me about Halloween in particular is the kind of stuff that you do is so detailed you'd need to have almost a kind of obsessive halloween audience that would get out this costume every year versus the things like the renaissance festivals and maybe these these um these comic book conventions where people would you know wear these things on a semi-regular basis but i mean where where you are is there like a halloween community that you know really gets out and does halloween properly you know that's what's so sad there's really not i mean Everybody likes Halloween. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, not everybody. <laughs> um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a Christian, and I love Halloween. I so, see nothing wrong with having fun with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, that's kind of, I would like to be, I guess, a pioneer in this field, because I know in some places, they have, like, these dances that go on at mm. their convention centers these huge fun things and we don't have that around here mm. yeah when i lived in northern california the satellite towns of sacramento cameron park uh these kind of oh. areas they did halloween big they did uh thanksgiving big they did christmas huge like basically every house and every street had like animation and lights and i think there's a there's a class thing like basically if people are like comfortable in their positions they have money they have time 
then they can invest in these kind of things. And it really goes for different areas. Um, but ironically, my wife and I actually brought Halloween to the to our little town in the UK. We were the first people to put up lights. Oh, not Halloween. Oh, actually, we did Halloween too. But we did the Christmas lights thing. And the Christmas lights thing, the first year we were the only... This was a town of maybe 30,000 people. But it was a relatively small town by UK standards. So the first year we put up Christmas lights and, you know, the neighbours went, oh, you know, it's a bit too much, what have you. And next year... <laughs> Three people on our street had the Christmas lights out. The year following, five people on our streets had the Christmas lights out. And it was really funny that these things are actually quite infectious. And I think you could probably do the same thing with Halloween. It just needs a small group of people within the town to put on something fun. And then these things kind of build momentum. And because it's annual, it's not like every other week. You could put some yeah. kind of planning into it. Uh, Tom, are you serious? There's actually places like... Did they not celebrate Christmas? Well, they didn't celebrate. You see, you've got to understand that the particular perspective on Christmas as celebrated in parts of the U.S. is very unique to those parts in the U.S. Where I'm from in Australia, for example, Christmas is the middle of summer. So it's completely, ah. completely different. Uh, it, the light, for example, is up. I mean, you, you literally have the summer solstice occurring on the 27th of December, so two days before, you've basically still got light until maybe nine thirty, ten at night. So oh. you have like a completely reverse thing. But in the UK, there's like, well, I mean, it's it's kind of old. I don't want to say old school religion, but I mean, it's it's a very kind of strict perspective about the way these things are celebrated. But there are people that are very. I think it's a it's a culture which is receptive to change over periods of time. So it wasn't that they didn't... For example, when we started with the Halloween thing, we put out pumpkins, we put out candles inside them, we carved the pumpkins, you know, we did all these kind of things, and slowly but surely, kids would come, because where I grew up in Australia, we certainly didn't do anything like you do for Halloween here. I mean, I guess... I can't remember trick-or-treating. I can't remember doing anything like that. But then again, it was... It was coming into summer. I mean, it wasn't. it wasn't... Uh, harvest festival it was really just just before it got into summer I mean it was kind of like late spring basically would you say that it is celebrated but it's just celebrated differently then I think I think all these festivals uh, well obviously there's no Thanksgiving outside the US and Canada and I really actually right. quite like Thanksgiving I think Thanksgiving is the kind of festival that could easily be exported to a, a number of other countries because I, I mean, where I come from, um, it's certainly personal perspective and family perspective and also the whole kind of commercialization associated with Christmas. I mean, honestly, for the past two, three years, mainly because of my what my in-laws do, my in-laws are in the steel industry in L.A. And in the past mm. two years, uh, their business has been so shot, we really haven't had any celebration. Oh. And I think my perspective is I like Thanksgiving because it's... Um, it's kind of celebration neutral. There's no gift obligation associated with it. It's just a matter of people getting together, having a meal, and, you know, having a good time. And certainly yeah. where I'm from in Australia, I mean, the the celebration of Christmas, certainly through my childhood, my father isn't Christian. And my mother really wasn't Christian <laughs> while I was growing up either. Um, and my father's perspective was really very anti-Christmas uh, and... I guess my mother's my mother's parents they brought in people who were kind of anti Christmas too. So the whole thing was a bit strange. Like we had two dollar Christmases where we'd get like an odd sock or a floppy disk or these kind of things. 
And really, I guess my... And then, ironically, I, I was dating my wife for only a month before I was invited to Christmas at her place. And I had never seen an American-style Christmas prior to... Well, actually, that's not true. The year before when I was living in Sacramento, I had a friend um, who was... I don't even know what... He, he, but... Um, uh, uh, what would you call it? Evangelical uh, Christian. So he invited me to his Christmas celebration... And I, you've got to understand, in Australia, we don't have the same kind of preservatives in the food that you get over here. And I really, I had, I went to their place for a meal, and it was like a combination of like pickled ham and various other like really strange things, but really heavily preserved. And then we went to yeah. this huge church, church service, and I was just like crawling off the walls because the preservatives were just really affecting me very badly. So that was my first Christmas in the U.S. And my second one, because basically I was living in the Bay Area um, at the time, and my wife's family, or my girlfriend's family at the time, said, well, why don't you come to Christmas here? Because I didn't have anyone to spend Christmas with. So I went down oh. and I repaired their piano. I helped out with the like younger cousins getting their electronic toys that had broken to work and I was like you've got to appreciate when I lived in the Bay Area I was working seven days a week probably 16 to 18 hours a day I didn't really sleep a lot just prior to meeting my wife I'd actually collapsed on the street from exhaustion um in in the Bay Area I was just like dead basically when the paramedics got to me they were like you're not 23 you know you're in your 40s don't show us your passport it's a lie so I just basically killed myself living in the Bay Area and then came down and stayed with my fiance, well, my girlfriend's family at the time. And I was just a human again. It was just a strange kind of welcoming environment. So I'm very receptive to the way people celebrate Christmas in this country. But I think... It's a very different kind of... I mean, for example, I mean, my father's perspective, and I do understand this, I mean, he came from a relatively, well, probably quite orthodox Jewish family that was very against a lot of these kind of things. And whilst he rebelled against that, and through the period of time, certainly my early childhood, he was an atheist, as my mother was, basically, um, it was a really quite unsettling time for him. Now, I can say that as an adult, as a child... It was very strange. Um, although, you know, I do remember some specific gifts. Uh, yeah. And, you know, these kind of things. And I have, for example, the, the, a few of the pieces of the train set that I was given at one stage. And I found they've re-released the Dungeons & Dragons basic box set, which was another great Christmas gift that I received at one stage. Although it's completely different now. It's nothing like the original. So I did get some nice right. gifts through. But a lot of it was just joke gifts like just really like when i was 16 17 my well my uncle uh, my mother's eldest brother would give me exactly the same book every year it was like roll dolls revolting rhymes and he'd give it to me every single year and then like on the fourth year he just forgot to give me anything and it was just like okay well at least i'm not getting that book that you've given me and ironically my mother recycled the gift and gave it back to his son and he looked at the book and said i've already got this and threw it aside so That's I guess Christmas cute. is full of these kind of memories of just general disgust, yeah. like being given a kaleidoscope at 17. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, I, I find the commercialization quite disturbing. I think it's a, a festival that if the church is to be really serious about it, they probably should 
I don't know, either distance themselves or really heavily explain the fact that the commercialised part of Christmas is really the antithesis of what the, the festival is supposed to be about. Uh, and I believe, you know, at least my church does when I actually go, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm a stay-at-home Christian, you know? <laughs> yeah. My in-laws are like that, too. I think the ability to stay at home and still judge is always a point of concern for me because <laughs> I think if you're... Oh, I'm judging. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know, but I think this is probably a, this is a deeper topic than has ever been touched on our previous Stone Eight podcast. Right. This is this is why I wanted you on, Tracy. I thought you could get to the cut to the quick very quickly. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think it, I mean f- for you, what is what is the kind of raw essence of the of the family Christmas? Oh man, gosh, I <laughs> I need some time to think about that. <laughs> But in a nutshell, it's um, it's just the being together and the love that you feel. And I think that any anybody with any belief can appreciate that. You know, the, the togetherness and the love is what it all comes down to. And of course, me being a Christian, it's about Jesus too, obviously. But then I can also have fun with Santa Claus and. I don't know. I think Christmas is what you make it. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to buy into the commercial commercialization. With the recession going on this year, we're going to be lucky to get three or four presents. You know, it's just, thank God I've got my mom, my grandma, my son. You know what I mean? It, it should be more like Thanksgiving, a time to be thankful. Hmm. No, I agree. I you agree know? entirely. Yeah. I think yeah. it's interesting that these, I mean, the, the, the other emotion that strikes me is that um, that these kind of emotions and these kind of feelings really, whilst it's good to have a day to equate with these kind of things, it's probably also good to have more than, I mean, to think about it more as a kind of life philosophy than just associated with the specific day. But I mean, your son, he's 10 now? Yeah. How do you know? Yes, he is. <laughs> I, know. I have this amazing, like, I'm basically Rain Man with regards to just all kinds of information. My <laughs> wife finds it constantly amusing that I can absorb every point of trivia. When I was a child growing up, my friends used to, what did they call me? Um, oh, the Drivel Sensei, that I would remember just like bizarro facts out of nowhere. <laughs> wow. Not that your son's was, age is a bizarre fact. But <laughs> well, I was just flattered that you even remembered me after all that time, you know, because I left so suddenly and I felt horrible about it. I didn't want to just end it, but I thought you'd forget about me. <laughs> well, I think you had a particular energy, and I think my I'm very receptive to that whole kind of hungry perspective which basically is I'm not in a position where I want to be in the future I'm working out how I'm going to get there you know and I think that's exactly yeah. what you've distilled and it's certainly an emotion that I that I come from as well so when I find people with that emotion or even I mean for example you know we mentioned Brandon DiCamello his the whole crew has an emotion that I'm very receptive to, which is that we've tasted some of it, we've been pulled back, now we're going at it again, but we're going at it with a different perspective, and it's the same kind of hunger, uh, but just through a different different facility. And also I thought that you, I mean, you have a certain drive and passion, 
which basically, if channeled correctly, could probably very easily uh, result in some degree of success. I have friends in the indie game development community who literally oh. just start up studios with, like, one or two people and then have, right. I mean, um, what's it called, Penny Arcade, that annual convention that they hold, they are, like, winning awards there and it kind of parlays into, you know, going from it being strictly an after-hours thing to a day job to a small company and they just, like, they have role after role of these independent games. I think the game development right. community is so rich with these kind of stories, which are never actually told. I mean, they're never outside the Penny Arcade or these kind of fraternities. Um, is it Conquer or something? There's a... Anyway, all these kind of websites. And I think this underground community, very similar to music and comic books and all these kind of things, people can actually kind of eke out and actually survive quite comfortably. I mean, the fellow I know, um fellow by the name of Joe Riem, actually... He lives in, I want to say Wisconsin, maybe up up in those that kind of greeny lake north area of the US. Um, and he, he he lives very nicely. He lives very comfortably um, doing these. Uh, I think he also he for a period of time he consulted with a variety of um, like children's television networks and things like that, and did various flash content. So obviously you you do do things on the side, but now I think he's pretty well independent game developer full time. And I think really these kind of things are not are there to do with a certain degree of persistence, but also just kind of getting you know getting an idea out there. Um, and certainly, you know, I I was very receptive to your energy because it was very much the energy that I've had through times in my life and you know working various non-descript day jobs in order to kind of pull things together. So that was an energy that, and also the IGTA, you know, a lot of the people there are like. I don't know, professional game developers is probably the wrong term, but they're people who basically went to college to be game developers, they've gone into large companies developing games, and they've never really had any kind of, you know, doing other things on the side in order to do game development. They don't have that. Whilst they're extremely passionate and their whole lives is game development, is game development, um, it's it's a different it's a different kind of uh, energy. And certainly I was very receptive to that with you, and I wasn't sure what direction... It would go because, you know, you were talking about doing voiceovers and a wide variety of other things when we talked two and a bit years ago. Um, well, you tell them I, I'm really flattered <laughs> that I touched you this much. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, I have, when I was talking to Erin about the kind of people that I wanted to invite on, your name was like in the top four people, basically, alongside Brandon DiCabello and a couple of other folk uh, who I hope will we'll get into this podcast. And really the aim of this is actually having not just a single log format conversation, but actually having you back on periodically. Because, I mean, certainly the stuff that you've done recently in the, in the public sphere, um, yeah. I think has been, has been quite challenging. Uh, I think everyone has their own particular perspective on, uh, on your... Uh, your recent time on VH1, so I don't know if you want to tackle that in this conversation or whether we'll save that for another one. Uh, oh, I'd love to. Because I, 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 having said all of this, in fact, I've introduced this whole thing perfectly because I don't think I can say anything that will be in a negative light having introduced the way I originally heard you. But I, I was really heavily taken back by um, the OCD project. And yeah. it was something that really struck me because um, 
I don't know. I, I think there are a lot of people that I'm in contact with, and I always have this kind of closet sense that I have very clear OCD tendencies. Um, and my father, in particular, um, has really strong OCD tendencies um, in terms of checking doors and all this kind of stuff. So I'm relatively receptive to the whole notion of, of what uh, OCD is. But I think the thing that struck me from the show, aside from me feeling really that this was... Um, I don't know, because I'd interacted with you previously, I found it very difficult to take my experience of talking to you and kind of, um, you know, befriending you on Facebook and all these other kind of things with your format in the show, because I almost sent, felt the sense that the really strong humanistic qualities that you have were in no way represented in the program. And you were kind of given, you know, five minute, 10 minute, three minute snippets kind of progressively through, which almost made, I don't know, it just, it didn't strike me as the person that I knew. <laughs> what, do you think I looked bad? I think it was, um, I think it didn't convey the variety of strengths that I've identified, basically. And I also, I have a real concern with regards to the portrayal of Kevin in particular. Um, right. Because since I've, well, I mean, recently he posted on your uh, Facebook page and I clicked through to his link. And mm. he strikes me as someone who similarly probably was really fascinating, really deep and had a number of different levels, but the show just portrayed him almost like a caricature. And I see what you... So you only got to see one side of me. You didn't get to see the whole Tracy. I think it was it was... Yeah, it didn't. I I just thought that the elements of you that I thought were really strong and powerful, which resonated yeah. with me when we first communicated, were not in any way represented in this. And I think almost um, the I think the representation. I I understand the way these things are cut, and I understand the yeah. way these things are kind of long format filming and then cut. But really, after the first couple of episodes it left me feeling just kind of what I did probably by the third episode was just fast forward through large sections of it. And really you and Kevin were the only two people that I had any like real interest in, which meant that the whole show then kind of got jumbled. And then I guess I just felt it was, um, I, I mean, I was very, I'm very familiar with the form of reality television and it's something that really fascinates me, particularly if you look at, you know, the Jackass legacy <laughs> and the things that came prior to it, and the kind of repackaging oh, yeah. and repeated repackaging of reality television. My wife watches um, Survivor. When we were in the UK, we used to watch uh, we watched Big Brother, I think, for two seasons. It's very different in the UK. Um, really? It's um, considered well. It's considerably more popular in the UK than it is here. Uh, in oh, fact, all the reality shows are. So to the point where in an office of 10, 15 people that had college educations, probably seven or eight of us would watch it on a frequent basis. Like it didn't, there was no social stigma associated with it. Um, but I think the thing that struck me, particularly because your show was very much constructed after the kind of murder-suicide craziness that went on um, in the kind of VH1 reality TV format, that I thought, 
and also talking to you leading into it, you really gave the very reassuring sense that this was going to be very positive and uplifting and nurturing. And the thing mm-hmm. that struck me from it was really that your representation as being, well, firstly, a really capable single mother and someone who'd survived for a long period of time through really quite adverse conditions was taken in a, and I should also point out the kind of, my mother, I mean, my parents got divorced when I was 10, 11, my father moved to the U S so my mother raised me basically. Um, so I understand the archetype of the single mother really quite strongly. Um, I don't know. I really, after probably the first three episodes, I found it really difficult to watch because I guess I was very jarred by the format of the program. Um, mm-hmm. And I really didn't... I mean, I have friends that are, like, both in the psychology profession and the psychiatric profession, like, you know, PhDs, lecturers, these kind of things. So I have a lot of time for psychologists... Uh, and even people that teach psychologists and the whole schools and these kind of things and how it's all put together. Um, But I I guess, I don't know. It was a very strange thing, and I was thinking about how I was even going to actually raise this with you because I Uh just I felt really strongly um, that this just wasn't a vehicle that represented you in the best possible light. And I guess uh, I just had a really strong sense that that was the case with this show. To the point where I don't even think I got... I can't recall if I tried... I think I tried to watch the finale and VH1 had pulled it off their side. So I don't even think I got to the kind of end of it. But it made me feel really... And I feel... I mean, you know, I feel about this with with other people that I know that have gotten uh, bad chops. And I'm very protective. Um, I have people that are contacted occasionally to appear in documentaries. And sometimes they will seek my counsel. I have actually one very close friend that was going to appear on... Are you familiar with Penn and Teller's bullshit? They have like a... You, you're familiar no, with Penn and Teller? They're like comedian magician guys. Oh, man, I wish I could It's a tall guy and a guy who never speaks. That's their whole bit. Really? Anyway, so there are these comedians called Penn and Teller and they have a show on Showtime called Bullshit and a friend oh. of mine was contacted by them and it was obvious that they were just going to basically really ridicule the guy because that's what they do on their show. Um, yeah. So I counselled him, thankfully, very strongly and even got correspondence because Penn and Teller live in Las Vegas and we have mutual friends. So I was able to actually uh-huh. get information, internal information to this fellow that he wasn't going to be treated favourably on the show. Um, yeah. So I guess my sense with the, with the OCD project is that... Um, and also, you really, and this struck me through Facebook, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about this if you don't want to talk about it, but basically you came back to the circumstances that you left in. I mean, there was absolutely no change in terms of your life situation coming back from the show. You just may have had more coping strategies. <laughs> well, I can honestly say that going on the show did help me it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I thank God I got to go on it. But I do agree with you that as far as the way we were portrayed, now don't get me wrong, the crew was fantastic. They were very good at us. But they they were focused on our OCD and not us as people because they left out great footage. It wasn't all 
tears and heartache and pain. We had a lot of fun and a lot of laughs, and that didn't get shown. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine that would be the case. Yeah, and that was the only thing I was disappointed in, is that I'm not only about my OCD. There's so much more to me. That's just one part of me. Hmm. That's that's what makes me... Me, me. <laughs> the other thing that concerned me was the element, and I got a sense of this, and certainly when you hear accounts of the, the kind of prehistory of reality television, there's a yeah. heavy kind of scripting element, and I felt that there were sections of the OCD project. Now, it, there are two kinds of scripting in these circumstances. There's explicit scripting, where people like say to you, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And then there's implicit scripting, which is used very much on uh, like talk shows in this country, where basically they rile people into certain degrees of hysteria and then turn the cameras on them. And I think that was my concern as well with the with the footage that came out of the OCD project that I saw initially, was that it was clear that they hadn't the the sections that they had cut, probably also and also the whole format of. I understand the notion that in order to get through things, you may need to have certain uh, upsetting and disturbing experiences. But certainly Mm -hmm. my own experiences have been that the real world oftentimes actually creates these things for you. And whilst I understand the notion of kind of trauma therapy, the element of made for television really I found quite unsettling as well. Um, I think it's a very interesting time for psychology. I don't know if you do any... um, any background interest in this, but what goes on at like Guantanamo Bay and um, Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan? What's happening with American psychology, particularly at being used as means of extracting information and doing a wide variety of things that really is um, completely beyond the realm of what has occurred previously in terms of using psychology uh, and very um, well well beyond the scope of uh, medical assistance. It's a very strange time for psychology in the US, and I do wonder if the OCD project will be some kind of footnote to that description as well, because I think there were... Clearly it was portrayed that this whole thing was intended to be highly therapeutic, but it was also intended to sell... This is this is the whole narrative associated with Brandon DiCamello, his stuff, I don't know whether he gets royalties currently. The other guys that I've talked to associated with Jackass and the remaining, they don't get royalties. They're not paid for this stuff. But it's aired continuously on MTV in order to sell, you know, acne remedies and these kind of things. So it's making the investors in MTV a lot of money. I, I, I mean, you know, we don't need to talk about the financial conditions that put you on the OCD project. But my concern is that there is an exploitative element associated with these programs to bring in advertising revenue and i don't know i just found it i found it unsettling i would have much rather have seen more of the human aspects and kevin for example um i mean you followed you you know kevin i mean you spent time with him he's an actor he's done various things in i mean he's a complex character without question but clearly he has a lot more than was portrayed on the OCD project. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Me and him both do. Oh, yeah. Um, I can honestly tell you, Tom, going back a little bit, that no part of that, we were handed a script. We were not told to act a certain way. It was sprung on us. But 
I don't know. When I think about it, it kind of, oh, how do I say this? I know that a lot of it was shocking, and they picked the most shocking part. Because, you know, it is TV, and that's what's going to sell. But, like my son's funeral, you noticed they really focused on that. I guess my point about it is, as I described leading into this, there uh, there are two kinds of scripting. There is explicit scripting, which you're saying that they didn't do, which I understand. I mean, it would be silly for them to do that. But there's also implicit scripting, which relates to... And there's a lot of there's a lot of information, particularly um, with American talk shows, how they basically get the guests in an emotional state, which will maximise their impact, but also fundamentally dehumanises them. And I guess that was my concern with regards to the OCD project, as it was described as a kind of therapy, that these elements were exploited for television. I don't know how it could have been. You then ask the question. How could it have been framed differently to acknowledge you as as humans, as as intelligent, feeling, emotional humans, and still make it into good television? And I guess that's a question that kind of went through my mind as I was watching it, and also after I finished watching it. I mean, as you participated I, in it, did you think about that, or as you watched it afterwards? Well, the only thing that I know me and several of the cast members questioned was, on the first day, they told us, okay, we're going to, this series is going to be eight episodes long. And we all said, well, my gosh, they have cameras on us 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three weeks. Do you realize how much footage was cut out? Hours and hours and hours. So I think they could have added more human element if they had, I don't know, what are sitcoms like 24 episodes in a season mm. and we got eight. So of course they picked and choose the most intense moment and they kind of left out our human dumb. <laughs> I understand that. I guess when you were going into it, you very much echoed this and this came through, I think your Facebook comments that you were going into it and you had basically been either told or had the sense that this was very much in reaction to the previous VH1 shows, which had been very caricature-esque, very exploitative, and ultimately, I mean, if you follow the the tabloid reports, ended in this kind of bizarre murder-suicide situation. I mean, going into it, were you told that... This was going to be a different style of show, and I mean, you had some. You had some. I mean, did you used to watch VH1? Believe it or not, I don't even have cable. I'd much rather play a video game. <laughs> it, I, I'd rather be on TV than watching TV, if you know what I mean. Fair enough. So you weren't familiar <laughs> with the kind of background legacy of what had gone on with VH1's programming through what was it called? Surreality or what? The, the, there was a series of programming. We arrived in the U.S. in 2005, um, and uh-huh. ultimately this is how I know about the... Uh, although I was, used to watch the Jackass, well, CKY videos when I was in the U.K., <laughs> so I know the history of their stuff. But um, when we right. arrived in the U.K., there was a period of time where I was like doing piecework and what have you, and I, I guess I watched a lot of VH1 and MTV in the first year that I was here, um, just because you know I, I was basically a house husband for a large portion of it. And the thing that struck me with it was that it was very... The the format of the shows were, as you say, it was clear that they filmed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they took 
the most exploitative and the most, um, I don't know, um, sensational aspects of all that filming and tried to then reconstruct it as a story. And my concern, I guess, from coming to that format, and we were very familiar with that format from kind of background of studying, you know, media propaganda et al. Coming to your program, which had been heralded, and again, I, I guess you're not really... You got. I, mean, I remember actually having some correspondence with you prior to you going on the OCD project where you said that this was going to be a new style of VH1 show that was more about healing and these kind of things. So where did that come from? Was that something that you were told going into it, or where did that come from? Well, I know um, from friends, they had said that, quote, most of VH1's programs were stupid. And I didn't say that, but they did. So Mm -hmm. I knew, okay, VH1 is known for stupid programming. And when we were auditioning, if you want to call it auditioning, they explained to us that VH1 recognizes just how stupid most of its programs are. So with the OCD project, that was their real first attempt to go in a new direction and, you know, try to touch people instead of just making them laugh. It's like, it's the type of program where you actually care about what happens to us at the end. You know, it's not about eating bugs and making an idiot of yourself. Mm. It's real people trying to heal. Mm. So. I guess my concern with regards to the format coming into that was that it took a lot, and this is not to do with the underlying content, but it took a lot of the stylistic elements of the earlier VH1 shows, particularly as you described this notion that you have what, three weeks, eight shows, in that kind of format, which was exactly the same format which they did with their previous uh, bizarro competition reality TV dating shows. That was exactly the same format. I used to say to my wife as as we'd watch them in the evening, what we're seeing here in a week-to-week basis is really only... I mean, every week we are seeing two days of these people's lives, basically. And then the the next week we are seeing another two days of these people's lives. And then next week, and they have to, the whole notion of filming reality television, it's, it's really quite interesting. I think the psychology of the producers, because what they're doing is taking two days worth of a wide variety of really quite random events, which they're trying to obviously structure through in your um, show's case tasks and various group sessions and these kind of things and make an underlying story out of that, which gives each of the participants motivation. It gives each of the participants um, an ability to really have a character, which I don't think would necessarily exist in day-to-day life. I mean, when I think about my days going into work, um, the people I work with could be reality TV contestants, probably quite complicated reality (laughs) TV, but the whole framing (laughs) of these micro-interactions in terms of broader narrative and motivation I think is really very interesting and the thing that struck me with the OCD project was firstly yes you were all thrown together um, in this environment but also that the elements um, well firstly I think I mean certainly in your case and in Kevin's case you both had survived and lived with OCD for quite a long period of time and in fact my majority of the participants uh, and Looking at Kevin online, looking at the stuff that he's done, he was really portrayed very much as 
a caricature because none of that stuff, I mean, is, I, I mean, maybe I missed it, maybe it was talked about towards the end, but the things associated with his acting wasn't discussed. The things associated with his stand-up, I mean, the idea of a stand-up comedian who has OCD, and particularly the profound kind of machinations of OCD, which they kind of focused on with regards to the Kevin character, I just found it really quite... It was like a disconnect. It was like, was this guy just acting through the whole show, or was this yeah. actually something that was very much a part of him, but basically they eliminated all the human parts of him, so he just became right. this kind of caricature. And for yeah. me... Oh, no, no. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I mean, for me watching it, I thought this is a really dangerous phenomenon. I mean, I don't... I don't I, I guess I don't want to participate in reality television. I really feel very strongly about people such as yourself um, who participated in it, and you know the the, the the jackass guys, particularly the ones that were who were clearly humans, emotional thinkers, but participated in this thing and then were kind of spat out. Um, but as you, I mean, as you actually spent time with these people, did you kind of get the sense that what they what would actually be shown to the general public was probably the ticks and the machinations versus the humans? Oh yeah, I mean we uh, we had actually just <clears throat> excuse me we had actually discussed that with our microphones on that you know they're probably going to mostly show the drama. Um, this is I don't know how this is going to be received, but if you notice, Kristen got a lot of screen time mm. because she, you know what, she deserved to get better. But she was most definitely the squeaky wheel, and the squeaky wheel gets the oil. <laughs> and if you notice, she got a lot of screen time. Mm -hmm. um, they really focused on, like you said, the sensational parts of it. Even though I think they did a great job, don't get me wrong. Um, I do wish that more of our real personalities would have been portrayed. Because I'm actually... I don't know if you could tell from the show, I'm a really fun, happy person, you That's know? That's the thing that offended me the most about the show, actually, was that none of that came through on the show. Really? I'm so a... I just emo chick? <laughs> no, it wasn't even that. I mean, I think basically they cut you to be, to be not even emo, to be kind of incoherent and really the thing that really offended me was it made you look like uh, uh well I, I even i feel concerned if i'd say it out loud but in terms of your competency as a mother it had elements which i thought was i mean this is basically the point where i stopped watching because i just thought this is just offensive um yeah and i found it actually really quite disturbing but i mean i think my perspective from it was that it was something that was completely constructed do you get a sense that it was received positively? Do you get a sense that there'll be sequels or other shows in a similar format to the OCD project? Honest to goodness, I think it was very well received. Um, <laughs> just judging by the number of requests and messages that I got on Facebook about my participation mm -hmm. and how many people, you know, how many people have I've inspired, it's been very well received. But also, I try not to view online comments because if you ever check out YouTube, people can be really heartless and insensitive. Exactly. You know, and I just don't want to see it. I don't want to know what's going on because even though it shouldn't, it will totally hurt my feelings. Mm. <laughs> so, 
based on my Facebook page and from the other participants, it's been very well received. And I really hope it's had a positive impact on people with OCD or even people with just everyday problems, you know? I I really wanted to do a good thing. In terms of your stated goals, in terms of making role uh, RPG, video games, uh, potentially voice acting, all these kind of things, was the OCD project, has, has there been any kind of positive direction associated with your kind of previously stated goals? Well, it's kind of like I tell people, I like to joke about it, because you obviously know I have dreams of making it in Hollywood in one form or another. So I tell people the very thing that got me into Hollywood is my mental disorder. <laughs> mm. You know, I might as well use it to my advantage. But yeah, I think this has opened a lot of doors. Um, definitely. I mean, I kind of went into it as, oh, let's see, what was my thinking? Hey, I'm an actress, and at the same time, I have OCD. So when I saw this casting call, I'm like, damn, let's kill two birds with one stone. I get exposure. It's something for my resume, which is great. And I get help, and I get to help other people at the same time. So it was win, 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 you know. In terms of the casting call component to it, and certainly this is the thing that struck me with Kevin as well, because I'm mean, watching the show, I didn't know that he had any acting background. I didn't know that he'd been associated with, I think, National Lampoons and, you know, various other things which are, you know, well-known well known gigs. I, he looked familiar to me, so I'm not sure if I'd seen him on something previously, although he has a very kind of standard kind of Midwestern male face. Um, but... Uh, I, in terms of the acting component, in terms of the fact that it did come through a casting call and not through something that was, I guess, therapeutic initially, I mean, how did it come to you? Were you, were you approached, do you have an agent or did you see a listing and just get in contact? How did you get to be a part of the OCD project? Um, I'm actually on an actor's mailing list because you do know that I'm an actress, but I just want to stress, None of this on the show was acting on my part. But anyways, back to your question. I got the audition notice through this actor's mailing list, and they were just asking for people with OCD to come and talk to them and possibly get cast. So I said, hey, I'm going to submit myself and see where this goes. And out of several hundred people, I was one of the six. And in terms of the fact, in terms of the way that you were introduced to it, and were any of the other participants on the show not uh, actors as part of what they did? I mean, were any of the people just found through either connections with therapists or these kind of things, or were all the people who appeared on the show uh, cast through the same kind of method? Boy, you know... Um... I know that Kristen had said that her brother is the one that found it. I don't know how he found it. As far as RNA, Cody, Jerry, um, I don't know how they came across it. Kevin, I'm pretty sure it was within an actor's network, but I don't know that for sure. 
yeah, Kevin has a video on YouTube associated with the Screen Actors Guild, uh, where he talks very coherently and very in a very focused fashion. And I think that's what I found particularly striking was the sense that this was a man who was clearly extremely intelligent and extremely focused, and he was portrayed on the show really as someone who was completely scatterbrained and really the antithesis of the Screen Actors Guild uh, footage. Uh, I guess, yeah, the I, I appreciate that when you say that none of the stuff that appeared on the show was acting. Um, I, yeah. I, I guess... I guess my following question to that would be: As have you studied acting previously? Is this something that you've done as like a profession or a hobby, or what's what's your connection with acting? Um. Well, it goes back to when I was a little girl. I knew I always wanted to be in the spotlight. I always wanted to be a movie star. Um, as far as doing anything i've done a commercial for tv and you know that i was taking classes in hollywood for voice acting which i have every intention of pursuing um and right now i'm interning at a radio station so very good yeah very i'm good. yeah i'm definitely pursuing my dream very good very good no i think uh, radio stations are oftentimes the vehicle for for these kind of things uh, oh yeah. Yeah, no, I really like the I really like the uh, voice acting part as well. Although all my I used to do ventriloquism as a young child, and really? I still tease my wife about it because the I think the <laughs> ventriloquists, particularly the ones that perform in Las Vegas, I think are particularly poor um, because you can see their lips moving and all the stuff that they do is pretty schlock. So I don't know. I think yeah. there's potential if I get sick of this software engineering gig to get into ventriloquism. Um, and I think, <laughs> I, I, but I would do it in some kind of strange, as, as, as we've talked about with regards to possible, uh, possible costumes, I think I would take it in some kind of strange, disturbing fashion. I think, for example, the, the dead terrorist, uh, uh, puppetry that comes through, <laughs> I, I would take that to kind of a different extreme, but kind of go along that level and kind of push boundaries with it. And I don't think well, any of the ventriloquists really are pushing boundaries currently. I'd be happy to make the costume for you. I can make it happen. Oh, you could make a puppet. Yes. Well, I guess the, the puppets I've been thinking about are all really strange parts of like American like subconscious, which really aren't talked about in any fashion and really are probably quite disturbing. But the thing that strikes me about the dead terrorist in particular is it is something that's quite disturbing. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's done in a comedic fashion and people seem to be relatively receptive to it. Uh, but I think oh, that, yeah. that caricature is very strange because the thing that strikes me, um, and this comes back to the, the book I wrote when I was 17, is that these these people that get caught up in Al-Qaeda and all this kind of stuff, they're all educated people. I mean, it's really quite scary. They're all like, they have master's degrees and they're like professional engineers and stuff. Of the 9-11 hijackers, I think all of them had college qualifications. And it just, there's, there's some underlying thing there that's not being told that these great minds can easily be drawn into these just completely crazy and destructive things, which I guess the dead terrorist never really talks about. Um, but yeah, I don't know how I'd take it. I've, I've tried some ventriloquism with my wife, uh, and she says I need a lot of work still, so I guess I'll have to practice. <laughs> The one thing I wanted to make is a, a cat ventriloquist puppet. 
because we're surrounded by cats. And the, the facial expressions in particular and just their general behaviour, I think, and also I, 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 I anthropomorphise our cats and they have voices and, you know, characteristics which are, you know, they work in kind of day-to-day life. But, uh, yeah, I think, well, if you could make puppets, there are probably a, a wide variety of commissions that I would be interested in exploring, but you'll probably have to give me some time to think about that a bit more, Tracy. I would love to say that I could sit down and design you a working puppet, but I'm not quite to that point yet. Well, <laughs> I only make the, In terms of the engineering side of things, and we talked a little bit about this notion of animatronic toys, in terms of the internals yeah. and the engineering and servos and all this kind of stuff, that's stuff I could do. Really, the only yeah. stuff that I couldn't do is, like, the external-facing, uh, you know fur, eyeballs, skin, what have you. But the internals and the mechanics and the eyebrows and the eyes moving, these are all things that I could probably make myself without any trouble. Um, Because certainly I have an interest in, uh, well, not so much robotics, but certain aspects of animatronics, which I think could easily be exploited. I have a friend in the UK as well who I work with quite closely, and he's just like, in terms of robotic vision and cars that drive themselves and all this kind of crazy stuff. He's, In fact, I have a friend here as well who got an award from the Queen. He's a British fellow, but he now lives in Arizona. And he has made some... He made um, an animatronic uh, orangutan and an animatronic monkey, which was very realistic. Um, so I have a few friends in my kind of broad spread um, that may be able to assist in terms of the underlying stuff, but the skinning and things like that, I mean, you, you seem to be one of the people to contact in these circumstances. Yeah, hey, we could start like a team or something. Well, I think there's, there's <laughs> certainly potential there, Tracy. But I wanted to close on this on this voice acting part of it, because certainly um, I think the whole notion of... Uh, Voices, I mean, if you listen to the, the Simpsons actors, for example, and a wide variety of actors now, cartoon actors, where their natural voices, you can hear the tiniest little elements of their natural voices coming through in the cartoon voices, but the cartoon voices are just yeah. things in and of themselves. Yeah. And I, yeah, it is actually quite captivating. And you seem to be very much captivated by that as well, but interested in taking it into a profession. When you, when you went to Hollywood, when you actually studied these kind of techniques... I mean, is it a matter of, like, watching a lot of old movies and listening to a lot of different accents, or how do you do it? Um, basically, you go into an actual, real working studio, and they hand you a script, and you do some mic work. And she shows you techniques for how to keep talking even when you can't breathe anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, little exercises to actually warm your face up, because... Voice acting, you have to act with your face. You, you got to be really, like they told me, you have to be about 20 pounds of crazy to succeed in that industry. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the breath work in particular, I was a, a boy soprano and I did a lot of professional singing as a child. And oh. I think I, a lot of that breath technique I use in, in podcasting and public speaking, a wide variety of settings, because as you say, you can basically breathe in very short snippets and also extend your time. And I think what's funny is I've, I've recorded podcasts for four or five years now, 
Some people listen to my podcast and think I actually edit out the breathing spaces because of the way I talk in some circumstances. But it's just the natural... I mean, I think the, the breathing technique is really fascinating. In terms of actually, like, capturing voices, though, I mean, this is a real skill. And I've talked to people that have done various voice acting things, and they will have maybe a dozen voices that, like, I, uh, a fellow who I was working with maybe three or four years ago that has just this amazing... Uh, Pakistani accent and I work with Indians and occasionally have worked with and went to school with Pakistanis and the, the accent is very hard to get right and this fellow oh. spent he said he he would drive like an hour and a half to and from work and he would like put on tapes of um of uh of people from Pakistan having long detailed conversations so he could get he would perfect it and he would always talk over them and get his stuff sounding exactly right I mean was there any discussion associated with these kind of techniques Absolutely. That, that's actually one of the techniques that my teacher suggested to just put in tapes and listen to them and talk with them and read books to your children in these accents. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's a technique. And she even gave us websites with various um, accents that you can just go and download and listen to. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, so many topics for future conversations, Tracy. I, I promised you that it was going to be a relatively short recording, and we've gone we've gone an hour and twenty. So we'll need to do this again sometime, Tracy. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for being yep. my first non-Heron Stone Stone Ape podcast participant. All right, Tom. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So when you're feeling in the need for a chat, just let me know. We'll set up a recording, and we'll put out your thoughts and ideas. And if you've got any follow-on ideas or questions just let me know we'll set up a recording okay tom thank you i'll talk to you soon tracy take care okay good night good night see you